So someone asked me the other day, uh, what is the most or one of the most significant things that I've learned about God since becoming a pastor? And I think the person was asking me this because they thought that somehow being a pastor gives you secret knowledge of God, like that I have an inside track, um, that, that I have knowledge that comes only by being ordained. Um, but I told them I still haven't received any golden plates. Um, so I don't, I don't have insight knowledge uh, into God. But one of the most significant things that I think I've learned about God since becoming a pastor, I could have learned long before I ever even entered seminary. And that is, God knows when I need encouragement. I can tell you how many times um, I felt bad about a sermon or, or I felt uh, I've been struggling with doubt or sin or both. Um, how many times I, I've doubted God's ability to use someone um, as weird or messed up or... Uh, or, 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 or as fumbling around as me. Um, and, uh, and then I get an email from one of you and you share what God is teaching you through me. And it's a crazy feeling, especially when, when I am positive that the sermon was a dud. And maybe it was, maybe that's the point. Maybe God can use a dud. Recently, I got an email from someone I haven't seen in 14 years. It was someone who, uh, when I lived in California, we both worked at a, at a summer camp in Beverly Hills. Uh, so those kids were just delightful. And, um, uh, and, uh, and so we worked at this summer camp together teaching the kids drama. And, um, and we've had no contact with each other um, since then. So it's been 14 years. We, we, we follow each other on the Instagram and on the Twitter. But other than that, we've, we've never talked to one another but I wanna share with you a part of her email to me that I got. She said, on Sunday, my family and I, she has three kids now, sat and listened to one of your sermons together. Now I've listened to you off and on for years, but my husband and kids have not. Now y'all, first of all, let me just give you some context. I don't remember ever having a spiritual conversation uh, with, this, with, with Sarah's her name. I, I don't remember ever talking about Jesus. In fact, when we were working together, um, I, I was not trying to evangelize anybody. I was struggling with what I believed at the time. Um, and so it kind of caught me out of the blue that she even, uh, she even knew that I was a pastor now. She continues to write. Recently, we've been going through some hard times and started talking about going to church. I think this has happened because we knew something is missing, but for a long time, we didn't know what that was. And despite this yearning for something better, we haven't found a church. So I suggested listening to Summit online, and it was a really profound experience. We are starting to read the Bible, and we will be listening to Summit every Sunday together as a family. That's crazy to me that God is using this place to speak to a friend from 14 years ago who lives a thousand miles away. That blows my mind. Hi, Sarah and family, if you're listening, we love having you as part of our family. It, I just, I can't even fathom that. But God knows when you need encouragement. And as we spent the last few months studying and seeking to apply Jesus' Sermon on the Mount, I'd say it's about time for some encouragement. Because Jesus, if you've been paying attention at all over the last several months, he has been bombarding us with uncompromising demands. He's called out our anger and our lust. He's commanded that we keep every single, every single promise that we make, that we freely give to those who ask to borrow. He's prohibited us from worrying, from boasting, 
He's instructed us in Matthew 5.16 to let your light shine before men that they may see your good deeds and praise your Father in heaven. He told us in Matthew 5.48, be perfect. Therefore, as your heavenly Father is perfect. So unless we are self-righteously unself-aware, it seems about time in the sermon for a little pick-me-up for a little, give me some tasty cakes and a Dr. Pepper and an encouraging word, Jesus. Because up till now, you've made me feel real guilty. See, the breadth and depth of Jesus's teaching in the Sermon on the Mount will lead us to either at this point give up or to put on a mask. So we need some encouragement. God knows when we need encouragement. And so Jesus, what I believe has to be everyone's breaking point. Now, for some of us, like me, we were, we were broken during the Beatitudes, like right at the very beginning. But if, even if we made it past those first 12 verses of the sermon, there's no way that any of us could get to this point of the sermon and think, I got this. Like, like no one of us can be that guy when you're desperately trying to open the pickle jar who says, give it, I got it. Just give it to me, easy peasy. Like nobody can be at that place at this point in the sermon. So Jesus, knowing that he has broken every single one of us from our self-righteously unself-aware selves, stops here and offers some encouragement. And it's encouragement in the form of invitation. An invitation to trust him. So he's been telling us how we are to live, but it's now that he begins to explain to us how we can live that way. And it's by trusting him. It's by trusting him and not ourselves. So let's look at what he says. Uh, we're continuing right where we left off last week. We are in chapter seven. I'm gonna start reading in the seventh verse. Ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find. Knock and the door will be open to you. For everyone who asks receives. The one who seeks finds. And the one who knocks, the door will be opened. Which of you, if your son asks for bread, will give him a stone? Or if he asks for a fish, will give him a snake? If you then, though you are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your father in heaven give good gifts to those who ask him? This is God's word. <clears throat> so following Jesus is hard. His standards are extremely high. And in fact, they are beyond us. But here we see the same Jesus who delivered these laws came to deliver us who do not keep them. You see, here we begin to see that Jesus provides more than he demands. We see him looking at this crowd at us and saying, all right, I know it's hard. I know what I've just told you is impossible. But that's why I'm here. That's why I came. That's why I'm telling you to ask me. It will be given. Seek me. You will find it. Knock, the door will be open. See, Jesus is encouraging us here by telling us that what he demands of us, he will give to us. What Jesus demands of us he will give to us. This is the how-to when it comes to receiving from God what God demands from us. And Jesus makes this point by how he frames the passage. Did you hear? He starts by saying, ask and it will be given to you. And then he ends by saying, your heavenly father, your father who is in heaven, he will give good gifts to those who ask him. We can receive from God what God demands from us by asking him to give it to us. That's it. 
See, Jesus stops this sermon and he looks at the people and he says, listen, I know this is hard. All you have to do is ask. It talked about this, uh, I think maybe last week or two weeks ago, um, that, that just saying, I need God in my life or I need God to be more in my life or I need God to be the center of my life isn't actually gonna change you. A lot of people come in to my office and say, I know I need more of God in my life because they think that will change them. But it won't unless they trust him. Unless you believe God is for you, unless you believe he has your best in mind, unless you believe that he's a loving father, that he's a God who hears you, you're not gonna change. Even if you do try to make him more a part of your life. See, Jesus in this, in this particular part of the passage shifts the, uh, the emphasis to the loving father who hears more so than the child who asks. So he tells us, all right, we need to ask, we need to seek, we need to knock. But then he paints us a picture of a father who gives. And, and, he, and he proves to us, he shows us how good the father in heaven is by, by, by making a comparison. He likes to do this a lot. He takes a lesser thing to prove a greater thing. So he says, if even sinful human fathers, the lesser, give good gifts to their children when they ask, then of course a wise and good God, the greater, will certainly give good gifts to his children when asked. This simple argument contains a vital perspective about people and God. When Jesus says, if you then who are evil, he's saying what the whole Bible says that we're all messed up, that we're all sinful, that we're all radically selfish, that we'll all rebel against God, we'll all do things that hurt other people. But Jesus says even sinful people can do what is right. That yes, there are some bad and abusive parents, but most parents, despite their selfishness, love their kids sacrificially. So if that is how human parents are, who are crippled by evil, if that's how they treat their children, then of course a holy, perfect God will certainly give good gifts to his children. So before we can even move forward in this, we have to wrestle with, do I really trust that God is for me? Do I really trust that he is a good and loving father? Because if he's not for you, putting him more in your life or even as the center of your life, that won't change you. Just acknowledging that he's God and he's more powerful will not change you. The Greeks had all kinds of gods who were more powerful. The Greeks had gods that people prayed to, but, but every response from, from one of those gods had a barb in it. It, it was always a double-edged gift. There's a story from Greek mythology of, of a goddess named Aurora, and she fell in love with uh, Tithonus, a, a mortal, and Zeus, the king of the gods, offered her a gift that she, she could choose to give uh, uh, this, this man that she loves with anything that she wants. And so, of course, she gives the gift that he would live forever. But she had forgotten to ask that he might remain young forever. So he grew older and older and older and older and never died. So what started off as a gift became a curse. Now, you and I, like, I don't think that any of us think of God like Zeus, but I'm sure some of us think of it, think of God as one who answers prayers with a barb in it. So you see why it's important that Jesus is placing the emphasis on the fact that we have a loving father who hears more than on those of us who ask. Because the whole sermon up to this point has, has been teaching us what we're supposed to do to bring about the kingdom. 
But now Jesus is shifting the emphasis to a loving God who hears because he knows that if we are to take seriously what he's asking us to do, we're going to need to ask God for a lot. So he better be a God who hears. So do you trust God is for you? So how do you, how do you start? And maybe, maybe you're struggling with that or maybe you do, but like, how do you know that you're trusting that God is for you? How do you build that trust? Well, I think it's in what Jesus instructs us to do. It's by asking, seeking, and knocking. By continuing to ask, continuing to seek, continuing to knock. So let's break down these three things. First, we, we are to ask. Archbishop William Temple famously said, when I pray, coincidences happen. When I stop praying, the coincidences stop happening. So the first step is we have to ask. I've said this before, questions invite relationships. Why is that? What's the posture you take when you ask a question? When you ask a question, you take a posture that invites someone else to open up to you, to trust you, to form a relationship with you. When Adam and Eve first sinned against God, I'm so blown away by the fact that when God came after them, he didn't come after them in wrath and yell, how dare you defy me? But he came after them with a question. Adam, where are you? From the very beginning, God has taken a posture with us, even in our sin, that invites us to open up to trust him again, to to have a relationship with him? Shouldn't it be the other way around? Shouldn't we have the posture that invites God to trust us again? If we go to the story that Jesus tells about the Pharisee and the tax collector who, who both go into the temple to pray, we see that the Pharisee stands up and he never asks anything of God. He just begins to, to lay out all that he's done for God. I've been faithful, I've been obedient to your law. Uh, you know, I fast and I tithe and I pray. What's he doing? Well, he has the posture of one who is inviting God to trust him. Look at me. Look what I can do for you. You're lucky to have me. But the tax collector wouldn't even look up toward heaven, but beat upon his breast and said, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. See, asking places us in the posture of trusting God, not ourselves, of trusting that God will be good, that he will provide, despite our ability to prove ourselves worthy. So I feel like Jesus is looking out at the crowd and, and, and he's knowing that we're gonna be wrestling with these words that, that he's saying. And he's, and he's thinking, I know I've asked a lot of you. I know what I've asked of you is impossible. You're not supposed to trust yourselves. You're supposed to take the posture of one who is trusting in God. Ask me, I'll give it to you. When you realize that you're struggling to do what I've asked you to do, don't just try to figure it out yourself. Don't try to pull yourself up by your own bootstraps. Ask me, stop and ask. What is your posture towards God? Or maybe more importantly, maybe a more important question for you to answer is what do you believe God's posture is towards you? You have the same God as Adam. I don't care what you've done or how badly you've messed it up or how far you've run. God's posture towards you is one that says, where are you? Trust me again. So are you humble enough to ask? God is humble enough to ask. 
So the first step in building trust that God will in fact give us what he demands from us, Jesus says, is just to ask. Have you been asking God what you need to live out what you've been learning from the Sermon on the Mount? Have you just been going out and trying to do the things? Or have you been asking? Jesus says, first ask, and it will be given to you. And then he says, seek, and you will find. This builds on the asking. See, seeking is asking plus acting. Seeking is is asking plus acting. Oftentimes we pray and say, God, I want to know your will. I have lots of people who who come in and and say they want help deciding what is God's will for their life. And asking is the right first step, but seeking is the necessary follow-up. See, if you want to know God's will for your life, you ask, but then also are you seeking it? Are 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 you reading this? God's given us his word so that we could better understand who he is, who he's created us to be. If we want to understand his will, we ask for it, but are we seeking it? Are we going through the scriptures like the Bereans did in Acts 17, searching them with eagerness to see what is true? See, the more you read God's word, the more you will know his heart. You can ask God to make his will known to you, but if you don't act by actually seeking him in his word, my guess is you won't ever know what his will is. Are you attending church regularly? The writers of Hebrews say in chapter 10, verses 24 and 25, let us not consider how we may spur one another on toward love and good deeds, not giving up meeting together as some are in the habit of doing, but in encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day approaching. See, seeking is asking plus acting. Meeting together is a way that we seek him. It's a way that we can hear from him. Are you striving to obey him? That's a way we can seek him. Are you surrendering the things that he's asked you to surrender? My guess is there are some in here who who very clearly know that that you're living counter to what God asks of you. There's a part of your life that you're just not willing to surrender to him. If you wanna grow in your trust of him, you gotta test him in this. It's like with money and the tithe. God asks us to tithe, to surrender our money by giving 10% to him. In Malachi 3.10, he says, bring the whole tithe into the storehouse that there may be food in my house. Test me in this, says the Lord Almighty, and see if I will not throw open the floodgates of heaven and pour out so much blessing that there will not be enough room to store it. You see, he knows that there's no greater competition for our hearts than money. So he tells us to test him in this. He knows the only way that you and I will trust him with our money is if we first act like we trust him with our money. He knows the only way that we'll trust him with our sexuality is if we act like we trust him with our sexuality. He knows the only way we will trust him with our children is if we act like we trust him with our children. The only way we'll trust him with our future is if we act like we trust him with our future. Are you being obedient? Are you surrendering to God the things that he asks? See, seeking God, seeking God is, is seeking his word. It's meeting together, being encouraged by other people who believe, and it's surrendering, it's obeying his commands. Ask him and then seek. 
And what often happens in the seeking process is we discover what we really want to ask for. Uh, my mom got my daughter, Alice, who's 10, a Google assistant, which I don't, I don't know why my daughter needs an assistant at 10, but, but she has one. And, uh, and, and the Google assistant lives in her room with her and, and my three-year-old daughter, Prin, also is in that room. Um, and I, I, it's, it's fascinating to me because I'll constantly uh, be walking down the hall and I'll hear Prin talking to the Google Assistant as if she's a person uh, and getting very frustrated with the Google Assistant because she wants the Google Assistant to play a song for her. But the problem is Prin doesn't know the names of any of the songs she likes. So she says something like, hey, Google, play Elsa's song. And, and Google's like, I don't understand. And she's like, you know, the one with the frozen fractals all around. Like she'll begin to like say the things that are happening in the song. But, but, but Google cannot respond to what she's saying. See, Google doesn't know how to respond because Prin hasn't really discovered what it is she's asking for. She has an idea of what she's asking for. But, but she's not quite there yet. Seeking helps us discover what it is we are really asking for. Sometimes what we ask for at first isn't the thing we most need. And without the seeking, we might never discover what that is. It's like, uh, it's like the, the Garth Brooks song. Sometimes I thank God for unanswered prayers, right? Unless he asked for uh, for the relationship with that girl, he would have never known that that's not actually not what he needed. And Tim Keller, who I put on almost the same level as Garth Brooks says, God will either give us what we ask for in prayer or give us what we would have asked for if we knew everything that he knows. Think about that for a second. God will either give us what we ask for in prayer or give us what we would have asked for if we knew everything that he knows. One of the ways you and I get to know more about who God is and his heart and what he's doing in the world is by knowing this. So seeking helps us best, better know what he knows, which then shapes what we ask for. Because Jesus doesn't say that God will give us anything we ask for, but that he'll give us specifically good gifts. Jesus doesn't stop after he says, ask and it will be given. If he did, That'd be great because we'd have a God who is our own personal genie in a bottle. But he doesn't say that. He goes on to explain what he means by that by telling us that we have a God who is a father who gives us good gifts. Essentially, he's saying our father knows how to give better than we know how to ask. But asking is the first step. We've got to take the next step of seeking, which then leads us to revise what we were asking for. Spurgeon says our prayers go to heaven in a revised version. Our heavenly father will correct our prayer and give us not what we ignorantly seek, but what we really need. This week on the, um, the radio show I do with Steve Brown, uh, we were interviewing a missionary who, um, who works in the Middle East and we couldn't uh, use his name because, uh, because if, it, if his identity were known, he'd be in danger. Uh, but he told us this story about a woman in the country where he's serving uh, that was a very prominent, educated, uh, very high up in terms of public recognition um, who came to his house one day and said, I want you to baptize me. And uh, he played dumb at first because he was fearful that this was some kind of trap. But then she told him that she had been on a search for some time for how she ought to live. And in that search, she came across the New Testament and she began reading the Gospel of John. 
And with tears in her eyes, she said to him, by the time I got to the 16th chapter, I realized I didn't need to discover how to live. I needed to discover a living God, and I did. And his name is Jesus. She, she started by asking, but her seeking led her to what she really needed. So don't not ask because you're worried you might be asking for the wrong thing. You gotta ask first, that's the step. But then you've gotta make sure to seek because that's the only way to discover what you really need. Now in the context of the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus is saying the Lord wants to give us his kingdom and his righteousness. That's the good gift. The Bible nowhere shows us people praying for happiness. It never instructs us to pray for happiness. It only promises that God will make us holy. In Luke eleven thirteen, 13, Jesus says, the Father will give the Holy Spirit to those who ask. He will give us what we need to grow in holiness, not happiness. Like I said a couple weeks ago, God doesn't promise us a carefree life. He promises us care. Paul says, Christ loved the church, gave himself up for her to make her holy, not happy, holy, cleansing her by the washing with water through the word and to present her to himself as a radiant church, a radiant bride without stain or wrinkle or any other blemish, holy and blameless. So Jesus says, I know I've asked a lot of you. As you're wrestling with how to live this out, first ask me, ask me for what you need. It will be given to you and then seek, seek it out and you will find it, which then leads us to knocking. Jesus says, knock and the door will be open to you. Knocking is asking plus seeking plus persevering. To knock implies that we are seeking something that is inaccessible to us. If we have to knock, that means we've tried and failed to attain something. We haven't been able to open the door on our own. But Jesus says God can and will. If you knock, it will be open. God made that which is inaccessible to us accessible through Jesus Christ his son. How? Well, Jesus, on the night that he was betrayed, was in a garden and he prayed to the father and he asked the father to take the cup away from him. And this was the cup of God's wrath against evil and sin and injustice. This cup that he knew would be poured out on him on the cross. And he said, he said, God, please, please take this away. If God, the father had given Jesus what he asked for in the garden, he wouldn't have gotten us. Jesus's prayer to God, the father was not answered with relief from pain or suffering or death or even hell. Jesus' prayer was answered by God the Father by giving him us. We are the good gift that God gave Jesus. And it didn't come, it had to come after God said no. It didn't come until after the pain and the suffering and even death. I know some of you have heard no from God recently, or maybe you're in the midst of pleading for something you think God will never provide. And it's something good. Maybe it's a, it's a spouse or a child. Maybe it's the healing of someone you loved. You can't imagine asking for anything other than relief from suffering or longing. C.S. Lewis once wrote a buddy who was in a dark place, and he said to him, for most of us, 
the prayer in Gethsemane is the only model. Removing mountains can wait. So if that's you, you can't even think about asking God to give you what you need to do all the right things that he wants you to do to be kingdom-minded. If all you can do is ask for relief, Jesus knows how you feel. But he also knows the good gift God the Father gives was worth the pain. You were worth it. Let's pray. Father God, I thank you that you do provide what you demand of us. That as we seek to be people who live out what you lay before us in the Sermon on the Mount, you encourage us to ask you for what it is we need. To seek you and we will find you. And to knock and know that that which seems impossible or inaccessible to us will be given to us. And nowhere is that more clear than in seeing what Jesus did so that we have access to you. That now there is a, there is a love uh, that, that cannot be taken away. That there is, there is a relationship established with you in which there can be no condemnation. So, Father, as we seek uh, to follow you, to follow Jesus' example, may we always be people who depend on you, who know that we have a good Father, who delights in giving us good gifts. We pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen.